If you would like to know different strategies to improve your quality life during your cancer journey, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Taking Charge of My Cancer podcast, where I'll be interviewing different healthcare professionals, cancer survivors, and I'll be teaching you different resources, tips and solutions so you can get the best outcomes while dealing with cancer. Welcome to Taking Charge of My Cancer podcast, episode 29. I have a great guest today, Dr. Coy Haldermont. He's a medical oncologist here at UF, and I have the pleasure to work with him in the last, um, I believe, like 14 years since I've been doing this. Um, he, like I mentioned before, he is a part of the division of hematology and oncology here at UF. And in addition, he's a lysosomal storage disease specialist. He helped establish and directs the pediatric and adult multidisciplinary lysosomal storage disease clinic here at UF. He performs scenographs of breast cancer into mice to develop better breast cancer treatment approaches. He specializes in mouse models of disease and use of experimental treatment. And as a breast oncologist, he's nearly aware of the shortcomings of conventional therapies for breast cancer, and in particular, inflammatory breast cancer. His laboratory is currently performing studies on patient-derived xenograft tumors in collaboration with several investigators at the University of Florida. And these were obtained from um, Dr. Alana Wilm Laboratory, as well as characterizing with respect to expression levels of estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2, EGFR, and HER3, as well tumor histology. In addition to these models, they have their own patient derivative xenograft models and genetically, genetically engineered mouse models of P53 and BRCA1. Deficit to allow drug testing in an individualized manner to better serve our patients. In addition, with the lysosomal storage disease specialist, he's been helping with the multidisciplinary help uh, team here at UF. So thank you, Dr. Alderman, for being here with me today. My pleasure. Okay, perfect. So you want to tell <clears throat> us about your your mission? Um, well, I mean, I treat patients and help develop and translate therapeutics. That's the, the very short version. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then how do you end up uh, becoming like do you ever thought about becoming a physician and a medical oncologist uh, well so my goal since junior high has been to develop a gene therapy for inherited disease um, subsequently I expanded that to more than just inherited diseases but that's still a primary driver uh, so my whole career has been about getting to that point okay okay right were you ever thought about doing something else besides being a physician um so prior to that uh prior to junior high <clears throat> um my goal was to become the world's first honest politician oh. junior high is when i realized <laughs> i wouldn't be the first but <laughs> and i couldn't be successful so <laughs> That was a good change right there. All right. So 
you have I've been knowing you for many years now here and, and patients absolutely love the work that you do with them um I know you know I know you more for like working a lot with breast cancer patients so um if you can give them three valuable tips um you know for their journey like if they have to be dealing with chemotherapy either prior to surgery or after surgery what will be those oh so it's a little little different than um <laughs> so valuable tips that i've learned along my journey is perseverance and goal setting are key yeah. uh, uh, with the plan to achieve but also to account for detours um that probably still could apply to the cancer patient journey yeah um perseverance uh trying to look at the long goals um but also relishing the what is going on at the moment, um, i.e. the moments that you have that are good, uh, you, you need to appreciate, stop and smell the roses, um, but <clears throat> keeping the long goal in mind, I think, uh, is is part of that process. Good, that's one. Any other valuable tip for your journey or their journey? Um, not really. I mean, I think I think those are the main things. You you need to find uh, clinicians that you trust, and then you need to trust them, um, and you need to bring people with you who will be your advocates. Um, uh, while I appreciate nice patients, uh, don't be too nice. You need to to stand up for yourself, and that part of that means speaking up for yourself and letting your carers know what's going on. Um, don't try to tough anything out um, because we can't address side effects if we don't know about them. And we can't adjust dosages of things if we don't know that there's an issue. Um, so I guess it's a, it's a bunch of colloquialisms almost. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a very good tip. And, and that's actually something that I've been learning um, along with the patients um, treating cancer is, you know, sometimes they just sometimes are like, okay, if you're the physician or you're the therapist or you are who you are and you're telling me this is what I need to do, I'm going to do it because you're telling me to do so. And sometimes, yes, I encourage them to just say, no, you just, if you have any doubts and you don't like it and you're not agree, speak up, right? get a second opinion. If you know, Dr. Halderman is amazing, but if you're not really trusting that, get a second opinion, you know, it's, it's just, you're just gonna be part of it and you just, you're part of the team. So you just need to be acting like a part of the team, so. Yes, and there are personality things that, that you know, some people's personalities just clash, right? Yep. And so finding someone you're comfortable with is, I think, helps to foster those relationships. So I, I, it's not something, it doesn't matter whether you offend your physician in one sense, but uh, it, you know, it's not a big deal to, to find another physician. Exactly, exactly. So would you explain uh, in general to our audience, you know, they, I'm sure a lot of them know about neoadjuvant therapy versus adjuvant therapy. Um, but if we're looking into breast cancer, would you explain to them like why choosing one versus surgery? Why talking about 
neoadjuvant therapy, which means chemo before surgery versus surgery? Sure. So um, <clears throat> primarily reasons to do therapy before surgery are just so you get a, a an evaluation of, of how effective that therapy is against your tumor as opposed to the average tumor. <clears throat> B, if you can downstage the tumor and make it easier for the surgeon to cut things out without having to take quite as much tissue, that'll improve your, your side effects from surgery, possibly even spare you an, a large dissection of the lymph nodes in the armpit area. And if you can spare that, then you reduce the odds of lymphedema, which is can be a de debilitating side effect of surgery and radiation. Um, so all of that alone is enough. And then um, af after that, depending on how you respond, if you have a complete response, then I know your prognosis is exceptional and you do as well. Uh, but if you don't, then it allows us to adapt therapy uh, to follow that on with, with other things that will reduce the risk of recurrence. If we do the therapy after, we don't have that opportunity. Um, so, and also we that allows us to potentially tailor the therapy to your tumor. Mm -hmm. Perfect. That's, that's a very well explanation. Another thing I come across a lot is this, you know, oncotype. So you want to tell us a little bit like patients go to surgery and they're like, well, I'm waiting on oncotype to see if I need to go chemo versus waiting for that to go into radiation. So will you want to tell us a little bit more about what is that means? Sure. So the there are a number of molecular profiling uh, services available. Oncotype is one, mammoprint's another. Um, there, there are others as well <clears throat> that what they do is they take a piece of the tumor they isolate the tumor cells and then isolate the RNA from those tumor cells. And from the relative amounts of certain RNAs, they can tell the likelihood that, that tumor will respond to chemotherapy um, and also give a better refinement of our risk of, or our estimate of the risk of recurrence. Uh, so if you've got a very high risk of recurrence, it's a lot more likely that chemotherapy will help reduce your risk. If you've got a low likelihood of recurrence, then chemotherapy either won't benefit you at all or might only provide minimal uh, benefit. Got you, got you. And then why doing chemo before radiation? Like on those situations after surgery? So you don't have to do chemo before radiation. There are a few situations that, or a few patients that get what's called radiation recall, which is means They've had radiation in the past, and then I get chemo. And for whatever reason, the regions that have been radiated react like they've been re-irradiated. And mm -hmm. so along the entire area of the breast, you get this massive redness, like you've got another sunburn from being re-irradiated. Yep. Um, doesn't happen commonly, but it does happen. So we, in order to minimize that, we often try to, to do the chemo up front. And then theoretically, although probably not a significant effect, theoretically you want to get, 
get rid of the cells that are circulating. And that's what the chemotherapy is doing. It's hitting systemic uh, disease, whereas surgery and radiation is more for the, the visible disease that's in the breast. Got you, got you. Okay, that's a very good explanation on that. Um, the other thing is, how about triple negative patients? Will you just kind of um, tell us a little bit more about like, you know, again, when we have, you know, a hormone positive, you know, PR, ER positive, sometimes it's like, okay, this is kind of like the best tumor to have because we know what's, what's, what's getting to that tumor and how we can block it. So what is, uh, you know, from the medical oncology standpoint, you know, the approach for triple negative. So triple negatives, uh, as you said, we, we look for three main proteins that, uh, that are often present on breast cancer cells, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2, which is stands for human epidermal growth factor receptor type 2. Um, but we call it HER2. In the old days, like the 70s, actually probably the 80s, when we first figured out what HER2 uh, did, uh, the HER2 positive group was the absolute worst. Mm -hmm. They recurred quickly, killed people quickly. Um, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, Herceptin came along, which is an antibody to HER2. And uh, that was transformative. It changed HER2 from being the worst of the worst to being better. Mm -hmm the estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor indicate that estrogen is one of the fuels for the tumor. And so we've learned, uh, we've known for more than a hundred years that modulating at estrogen levels can sometimes cause responses. If we drive down estrogen levels in the body, we can dramatically increase the odds of tumor shrinking or not growing. Um, and so those are targeted uh, therapies, either the anti-estrogen or the anti-HER2. And then <clears throat> we have non-targeted therapies, which is chemotherapy, which is essentially poison. And so our, our job as a medical oncologist is to balance the amount of poison we're giving you versus the, and its effects on you versus the, the odds of killing the cancer. Um, and so that's why we have to know about side effects so that we can modulate that appropriately. Um, triple negatives, they don't express any of the targeted therapies. So we're kind of limited in large part to just the chemotherapies. And over the last couple of years, there's been an increased uh, ability to use immunotherapies. So things that help your immune system to recognize uh, the tumor. And for triple negatives, this is a, a more valuable approach because it provides us at least some targeting uh, and increases the odds of, of us getting a, a good response. Got you, got you. Are you guys doing immunotherapy in the new adjuvant um, as well? Yeah. Okay, okay, great. That's good to know. Is that something newer? Yes, okay. last couple of years. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. That's great. Yeah. I keep hearing more and more like about it, like looking into some research into that and then just and go. Te technically Herceptin is an immunotherapy too. It's just, we're literally bringing an antibody to the, the molecule that's on the cancer cell. So it's sort of like a heat seeking missile. 
brings it there and tells the, the immune system, hey, this isn't supposed to be here. Okay, got you, got you. That's a very good explanation. And then if we're just going to move a little bit away from breast cancer, I'm like so in tune with this lysosomal storage disease. Like I have no idea you were doing that. You want to explain to us what is that? So lysosomal storage diseases are inherited diseases predominantly. And the lysosomes kind of the the intestine or the uh, the digestive tract of the cell. So in every cell of the body, you have lysosomes. And if you have a defect in any uh, enzyme that's in there, then whatever that enzyme's in charge of degrading, you don't degrade that. Okay. And depending on what it is that you're not degrading, some, sometimes you need re to recycle more of that or eat more of that in a given cell. And so you accumulate that. So the lysosome gets bigger and bigger. It's kind of like Thanksgiving and you can't digest turkey. Okay. You know, you gradually get a bigger and bigger stomach and you, you come up tunded. Uh, you just, you know, just function. <laughs> and that's what happens to those cells. They get bigger and bigger, distended stomachs, and then become non-functional. Uh, and that's a problem. Uh, so for some diseases that mainly manifests in the brain, and so you get neurodegeneration, you get people losing, um, you know, cognitive function, uh, and eventually function of things like regulating breathing. Uh, in some uh, cases, it happens in the bone marrow, and then they develop pancytopenia, where they don't make enough red cells, white cells, uh, etc., uh, some it's the liver and the spleen get really big. And so you can literally have a liver and spleen that take up your entire abdominal cavity and make it hard for you to eat. Got you. Uh, and it, some it can manifest in the skeleton where you just have bone malformations. Okay. Got you. Got you. Super interesting. And then what do you do to try to help with that? Uh, so for some of the diseases, we have enzyme replacement therapies. Okay. So you can give intravenous infusions of the enzyme that's missing and get it to most of the cells that are deficient. Uh, and that can slow down or reverse some signs of disease. Maybe not all, but some or most, depending on the disease. Uh, but for most of them, we don't actually have a therapy. And so one of the things I'm doing is um, developing gene therapy and, and stem cell therapy approaches to try and treat it. That's awesome. Wow, that's super great. So that's what you're doing on this, working with this lab to try to develop this. Oh. Got you, got you. Perfect. Um, how about what has been your most painful lesson that you learned through your journey? Honestly, I've lived a blessed life. So I'll say that the most painful part of everything is the regulatory burden and barriers that stifle much of the translation. It just bogs things down. <clears throat> it's kind of like paperwork. Um, in clinical practice, the paperwork and the fighting with the insurance is what impedes my ability to uh, deliver care. 
right, for the most part. Um, and on the research side, it's the regulatory burden and barriers that, you know, make it so that I spend a large part of my time, you know, doing the regulatory stuff, not the actual science stuff. Yeah, it's so sad, uh, isn't it? <laughs> we have a, a brilliant minds that should be focusing like yours in all these research and ideas and the scientific, but so sad that we have to spend all this time in all this paperwork and regulatory to fight for somebody who doesn't even know what is the science telling them, right? So this is the yeah. sad part when you fight an insurance. Okay, that's, 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 yeah, I feel your pain. That's the most painful part <laughs> on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How about, um, is anything that you have that will be a value for our audience that I have not been asking you yet? Um, mainly medical skills. That's what I've developed. Medical and research skills, uh, until the therapeutics are approved, uh, until I get them out there, that's that's the best I've got. Okay, got you. So I have a question. Um, how often, if you want to tell uh, the audience a little bit more about, you know, neuropathy, like, you know, how often, what is this? I get a lot of questions many times from the patients, like, is this temporarily, is this going to go away? You know, what else can we do about this? So you want to, you know, expand a little bit more on that. So sure. So certain of our chemotherapeutics are, you know, they're poisons. And so they can cause peripheral neuropathy. Sometimes consequences of the cancer can cause neuropathy, like if they grow along a, a nerve root or if they cause the, the spinal column to compress uh, and you get nerve compression, uh, that can cause neuropathy as well. And then you combine that with all the other things that, you know, as we age, we're more likely to develop neuropathy because of repetitive use injuries or because of, you know, we develop diabetes or other such conditions that can also affect nerves. Uh, and, you, and if you put those together, the odds of developing a persistent neuropathy start to, to grow. So the, the best things for neuropathy are preventative. Um, which is always hard, right? So once you've got cancer, it's hard to do any of the, the things that will prevent that neuropathy, mm -hmm. uh, such as not getting diabetes, mm -hmm. not getting overweight. Uh, those are, are things that are helpful. Mm -hmm. um, the other side of that is we're working on approaches to minimize that neuropathy. So... Uh, the first thing you can do during treatment for neuropathy is let your doc know that you're having neuropathy, and then we can change the dose a little bit mm -hmm. uh, to help reduce those those odds. Um, the second thing is we're, we've got a clinical trial right now of a compound that uh, in mice, when I give mice that are carrying human cancers this compound, it improves the response to chemo and it prevents the neuropathy from the chemo. So we're testing to see if that works in patients. That's awesome. Um, and there are some other approaches, compression, ice, uh, that are, are still in development, uh, but are pretty inexpensive interventions that could potentially help. Mm -hmm. um, maintaining mobility, you know, you have to use it or you lose it. And so exercise is going to be key 
for everything going forward. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a lot easier to say than to do. But <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and then with that alone, yes. Yeah, so, so rehab, uh, you know, from the PT and physical therapy standpoint, that's something that we tend to really do as, uh, you know, as soon as we can see the patients for baseline in regarding looking at the sensation, their balance, the strength, the gait pattern, and just the habit of moving and exercising. So it's, it's easier to, to get that um, before they even start treatment, right? Versus when they are already in treatment and they feel really bad. And here we are telling them, you need to do 150 minutes of aerobic exercise a week, right? And they're like, are you kidding me? I just barely can just even get up and move for 10 minutes, right? So sometimes just being really proactive and try to start early on rehab is super important for really good outcomes. Yeah. Um, uh, and as well in regarding neuropathy, you know, from the PTSD standpoint, is nothing I can do for the nerve, but certainly improving all that musculature on the feet to improve balance, to improve proprioception, to continue encourage them for mobility strength. Um, that really makes a big difference. And we... Once it's developed, we have some interventions that reduce it somewhat, but none of them are as effective as preventing. Yep, 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 absolutely. Um, How about cancer-related fatigue? Do you want to tell them a little bit about that? This is something as well that we, like this is the eternal issue with a lot of our patients, even after um, the treatments are, are done, right? Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had a magic bullet for that. Uh, it's still exercise. Yep. Um, you know, eating, you know, eat your vegetables and get your go outside and play. Yeah. Uh, I think part of that also involves the support group, um, but some people just don't have that as an option. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, in a, in a if I was king benevolent dictator, then every cancer patient would have a personal trainer to help them stay on diet and stay on exercise routine, right? And that would that would be alleviate a lot of problems in the world. Yep, that's absolutely right. Yep, yep. But I'm so glad that, um, and I know you do encourage, and a lot of, you know, our department here, or like medical oncology department, really encourage uh, the patients a lot with exercise. So, um and I think that something that has been really helped us as well here, we do uh, an embodies a body composition that is able to identify, you know, how much muscle you have, how much fat you have, how lean you are. And I think that has been a really bringing a lot of like, um, what I want to say, encouragement or discouragement. So when they come in and they see, oh my God, when they see actually something on numbers that represents their body, they're like, are you kidding me? I knew I have fat, but this much fat, this is disgusting. I'm going to do something about it and motivate them because we know that, you know, uh, obesity leads to more issues, including breast cancer recurrence, you know, uh, the, the development of lymphedema. And, and with that along, other, all these secondary, more fatigue, you know, more issues with that. So yeah. that has been a really good tool because then it's like, we do it often, right? As we do our surveillance program for breast cancer patients. And every time they come and we do it, they either like, oh my God, I need to exercise because I need to prove to you that I'm going to improve this, right? I'm going to see how my fat goes down, how my skeletal muscles goes up. So that has been a really good tool for us to use it as a, okay, here, this is what you need to do. And this is the exercise program you need to do to get into that. So 
that has been very, very helpful. It has been helpful as well that if we see a patient and they are having a very low skeletal muscle mass, and then we start worry about, you know, cachexia and, and sarcopenia and how more toxic chemo can be. So that a, a very nice way for us to kind of alert and alert you guys, you know, kind of send you a message like, ooh, we just got to really watch on the dose on this patient because this can be really get them down for a bad, you know, like a worse toxicity going through chemo. So that has been very helpful for us to be able to, to, to see that in numbers and for the patients as well on their education and a big motivator. So that's kind of a good tool to have. You're welcome to come, come down to the department and we do it on you. See how much muscle you have, right? <laughs> <clears throat> All right. Yes. Could be my motivator. Yeah, that's the can be your motivator. Yeah, anytime. So um, I'm going to, uh, in the description of the podcast, I'm going to uh, write there, how can people find you? But where can they find you? Uh, I mean, obviously, email uh, is works. Uh, referrals work. Uh, if it's for research questions, you can um, give me a call. <laughs> okay. Okay. And I'll put it on the description of the our UF um, website system. So I'll put it down there. Uh, how about any books that you can recommend to the audience and why? Oh man. So yeah, I've got I, I I'm a bibliophile. I like love to read. So uh Guns, Germs, and Steel is a classic. Uh enjoyable romp through the happenstance, luck and circumstances that develop our world. I just find I find history fascinating and history of medicine and the interaction of all of that is very interesting. Um and I think most people can, it's applicable to most people. Uh, they can see those applications. And then uh, Terry Pratchett's, Terry Pratchett's Discworld series. I'm a sci-fi fantasy guy, and he created this whole world that, you know, sits on top of elephants, that sit on top of an, uh, a um, turtle that swims through the cosmos kind of stuff. Uh, it's uh-huh. just creative fun and, and he, you know, uses uh, bizarre things to really speak to uh, and describe human nature. And they're, they're fun and quick, easy reads. Okay. And then I've been reading, I've been on a, a history kick of late of uh, Founding Fathers. So Washington by Ron Chernow or John Adams by David McAuliffe. Or the Three Lives of James Madison by Noah Feldman, or not quite founding father, but Theodorus Rex. It's about Theodore Roosevelt. Um, and what I find valuable about them is you regain perspective. We tend to idolize the you know the founding fathers yep. and lose the the perspective that they're humans, and they had very human foibles and. It gives you perspective on the combative, petty, and very human nature of our founding fathers, of leaders throughout our history, and that our current political divisiveness is not actually unique in U.S. history. It's been happening over and over and over again. Uh, and the vitriol was absolutely horrible back then, uh, as and it's been through many periods of history. Okay, that's very good. That's very good advice right there. Um, how about uh, podcast? I don't, 
I don't watch any podcast. <laughs> <laughs> listening to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not a regular subscriber to podcasts. I pretty much, um, yeah, it's, I prefer the book. Uh, you know, the only podcast that I, I see are clips of podcasts that are like in my Facebook or, you know, some feed that of some sort, but. Yeah, I have this really, I have this really good one. It's called "Taking Charge of My Cancer" podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you can listen to it. it. Has a couple of really good speakers in there, <laughs> or guests, or interviewers. Okay, how about movies? Um, I'm a big fan of classic cinema, but uh, "Once Upon a Time in the West." It's an epic, huge screen, great music background music uh, you know Bronson and Henry Fonda and it's just <laughs> epic stuff same uh, a couple of decades later Dances with Wolves That's similar amazing. concept um, but also romantic and beautiful and sad and uh, but also has action uh, and then cleaving to my sci-fi uh, The Fifth Element yes. it's got a bit of everything Romantic yep. comedy, sci-fi western, political commentary, some spiritual aspects, all while being completely wacky. And <laughs> um, so, yes. Great. Okay, so to wrap up, is any other question that um, that you feel that um, you know you would like me to ask, and you will have answered it. Uh, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, one more question i do have one more question so for your hormone um endocrine therapy right so your you know your um hormone blockers is anything so i i come across a lot of patients who again because the secondary effects right so i feel terrible my joints hair all over fog brain you know um you know hot flashes etc so what will be your best advice to them, like to help them to make a decision to just really take them or not? So so my first advice is to try it. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that the effects of, of hormone deprivation are not on off, but they're, they are coming on and then coming off. So none of it's long term. Uh, some of my patients have no side effects at all. And you don't know who's going to have side effects and who's not going to have side effects. Some side effects are very manageable. Some are very not manageable. And if they're not manageable and the benefits are not worth your side effects, then that's a, that's a reasonable medical decision to make. Mm -hmm. uh, but you won't know if you don't try. Okay. And so it, it's better to try and if it's just not worth it based on your side effects to the drug and it's not something that we can modulate with anything else, then it's, you know, it's like taking anything else. If your side effects are, are not, not enough benefit to make it worth it. Got you. Okay. And yeah. that, that's a reasonable decision to make. Okay. Uh, we do have some things, you know, for aches, there's a proportion of the population that has inherently low vitamin D levels. And for those people, restoring their vitamin D does wonders. 
Okay. For people who have normal vitamin D, it's not going to do much good. Okay. For the people who are low, it does. Okay. So it's better to have like a, an actually block work or some how some knowing exactly what their vitamin D is before they start taking vitamin D supplements? Uh, so before you take vitamin D supplements, it's probably a reasonable plan. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, the, we have multiple guidelines suggesting calcium and vitamin D, but the, the data is only showing benefit in select subgroups, not for general populations. Okay. Good to know. Uh, so, I mean, I'm not opposed to vitamin D and calcium. It's not good unlikely to hurt you significantly but it's unlikely to help you unless you're in the groups that that we've shown that it helps okay that's good to know perfect and the other question i have is so sometimes um women who are postmenopausal and they don't really have a good reaction at all with those you know ai's type of drugs um and sometimes just you guys have to go back down to tamoxifen so is how good is that in a postmenopausal woman versus you know premenopausal? Um, well, tamoxifen is, I mean, it was our our it's our longest standing anti-estrogen therapy, right? Outside of cutting out ovaries, mm -hmm. um, the it's been around since 1970, so okay. we've got a lot of experience. So we know the risks and we know the side effects. Um, increased clot risk, increased cataract risk, uh, increased uterine cancer and uterine bleeding risk. Um, so if you don't have a uterus, uterine bleeding is not a big deal and you're not going to get uterine cancer. Uh, if you're very active, then the clotting risk goes down mm -hmm. and you don't smoke and, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, if you've already had cataract surgery, you're not going to develop cataracts. Head-to-head, uh, -head, tamoxifen is about 80% as effective as letrozole, anastrozole, exemestane. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's still quite effective. Okay. And um, tamoxifen was, the dose for tamoxifen, tamoxifen was determined back in uh, the 60s and 70s when we Everything in cancer was give as much as we can until the patient can't stand anymore, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's where tamoxifen got dose. Okay. So if you're um, a petite person, then we might be able to go down on the dose of tamoxifen. Okay. Okay. And still be every bit as effective because we may just be oversaturating you. Okay. So that's yet more incentive to exercise and lose weight and that, that sort of thing. That's great to know. That's very good to know. That can be another another great piece of information for the patients who are like doubting. You know, sometimes they're coming like, I don't know what to do. And what will you do? You'll be on my shoes. This kind of situation, right? So I always tell them, you know, you have great physicians and they're really great with research. They're going to give you the facts if it's worth it or not. And if it is worth the the side effects, otherwise, you know, versus the recurrence. So, and so. The, the other thing that I relay to patients is, I think some of the uh, musculoskeletal manifestations of the aromatase inhibitors, some of that's the antiestrogen, but some of it's the stuff that's in the pill that's not the drug. Okay. And when you when you make a pill, 
Um, you have your drug, your active drug, but you also have things like polysorbitol and PEG and dye and all this other stuff that goes into making it look the same for every pill and that keeps the drug together because a lot of drugs, they won't okay. compress into things that maintain a form. Okay. And I've had patients who were on an aromatase inhibitor and then the pharmacy changed them from one brand of that to another brand of that. Was better. Ah. And, and that's when they got the side effects. And when we switched them back, the side effects went away. Oh, that's very interesting. That's very good to know. And so I, I don't know that that's a large proportion of those patients, but for some patients it is. Okay. And a third to half the time when I switched from one aromatase inhibitor to another aromatase inhibitor. So drug still doing the same thing, but different compounding. Mm -hmm. um, the, those side effects improve. Okay. So, uh, so we'll, we play around with switching drugs, making sure vitamin D is up and, you know, potentially ultimately switching to tamoxifen. And if they're of normal weight or petite going down on the dose. Okay. And occasionally I've even done, um, less frequent dosings of the aromatase inhibitor. Uh, that's a little easier with the, like exemestain. There's some data now showing that exemestain, um, it, it has a longer half-life um, in its active part. So it binds irreversibly and so it'll hit in that pocket. And so you might not need quite as much. Okay. When you dose it less frequently, it's less effective, but like dosing it daily versus every other day, you know, you go from 99 to 95% effective, if that makes sense. Yeah, got you. Okay. Uh, but if you try to go to once a week, then it's only about half as effective. Okay, got you. So we can sometimes play with that. I don't like to play with that as much because that varies and mm -hmm. is going to be dependent a bit on, again... Volume of distribution. If you're a larger person, that's going to be less likely to work. Got you, got you. Okay, perfect. And the last question, I promise, because I can keep you here on and on with all these amount of questions, is um, what are your thoughts about fasting prior to um, actually infusions for chemo? So, so theoretically a fasting or intermittent fasting or low calorie diet constant uh, might be beneficial for cancer. We don't know. It's hard to do those studies. Um, we, we've done lots of dietary studies in breast cancer, the vast majority of which didn't show any positive results, but the vast majority of the time, patients don't comply with that diet, right? It's hard to change your diet. That's why only 5% of people can maintain weight loss for long-term. Uh, the interventions that have shown benefit on a randomized basis have been like doing a Mediterranean diet, but in order to maintain a Mediterranean diet, they had people with daily reminders, weekly visits with a nutritionist for, you know, on the order of months to years. Mm -hmm. uh, and we just don't have the resources for that. I wish we did. Mm -hmm. It would do more than 
many of the things that we do that are medical. Mm -hmm. um, fasting around the time of chemo, there's some phase one, phase two kind of data showing improvement in side effects, mm -hmm. possibly improvement in the effectiveness of the chemo. That's a little harder to, to tease out. Um, in mice, when we give them either low calorie or fasting, um, it slows down growth of cancer, right? So, and can make chemo more responsive. It can also seemingly reduce side effects. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, whether that's, we, we don't have well done large randomized studies of doing that because it's hard to do well done randomized studies. Mm -hmm. And there's not a drug company who's going to sell fasting, <laughs> uh, right? Uh, that's just not going to happen. Um, though uh, that does bring up the possibility with the new uh, weight loss drugs, they inhibit appetite, right? So they block basically people don't have a desire to eat. Mm -hmm. uh, so it'll be interesting to see um, how that affects things. Now, teasing apart, is that because you're losing weight? And that's why you, yeah, right. I see where you're coming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we do know that people who are obese and have gastric bypass surgeries or weight loss surgeries, they have lower cancer recurrence rate or cancer occurrence rates. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems like a no brainer to, that a drug that diminishes appetite and causes weight loss would potentially reduce your odds of occurrence or recurrence and if there's truth to um, the effects on side effects, now granted they have their own side effects in terms of nausea and mm -hmm. et cetera, but um, yeah, hopefully we can get a trial for that soon. Yes, yes. And with those lines as well goes exercise, right? What's up? Yes. Was a really good research done in mice. We did that like right before COVID, I think, that's when he presented over the Cancer Institute here about like getting this, this mice is running on treadmills prior to chemo and radiation. And, uh, and it has been always kind of like, since then I actually tried to get patients in here right before the infusions and we work them out and then we send them up there for infusions. And I get no way to prove if the effectiveness of chemo is better or not because we don't have a way to prove that. But yeah. side effects, definitely, I would say 90% of them so much better respond with side effects. For sure. So that has been oh. super great. I, t I tell my patients, there, there was a large study of the UK. They followed 27,000 patients. And they just prospectively tracked their activity. Mm -hmm. And there was a linear decline in risk of heart attack, stroke, cancer of the colon, cancer of the breast, and risk of death. With every step you take per day, up to 10,000 steps. So five's better than four, nine's better than five, ten's better than nine. The great thing about that is ten is the inflection point. Mm -hmm. So twenty thousand steps didn't reduce your risk of death or cancer or stroke. It did reduce your risk of MI, but any more than ten thousand. So ten thousand steps a day is my goal for my patients. Okay. 
and uh, you know you don't have to do that all at once. Um, but you know you walk a couple of miles, and that's five thousand steps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the they also track the most active thirty minutes a day, mm-hmm. and is roughly a three to three and a half minute mile. Mm-hmm. So steady walking pace, not speed. That was the sweet spot in terms of reduction of those risks. That's not maximum cardiac capacity or any of that, it's, mm-hmm. but it's reduction in your long-term risk. So if they did that, that would do more to make sure they were alive in 10 years than almost anything I'm giving them. Okay, right. That's that's very good. That's a very good study right there. Awesome. Well, like I said before, we can keep chatting here all afternoon, but I know... Um, it's time to let you go. That was super helpful. Thank you so much for being here with me today and, and bringing all this valuable information to the audience. Thank you. We appreciate your partnering with us to keep care for these patients. Thank you. I'll appreciate it. You have a great evening. You too. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Taking Charge of My Cancer podcast. If you haven't already, please share this out to some more people who can get access to Cancer Rehab Solutions. Now, if you would like to connect with me, go to www.cancerrehabsolutions.com where you can find some free tools that will help you during your cancer journey. Until next time.